Welcome to the Recovery Hour podcast, where we choose to recover out loud by sharing our personal stories of inspiration, hope, and triumph. Together, we can end the stigma and shame typically tied to mental illness and the disease of addiction. We are proof that recovery does happen. Joy and laughter may be involved. This is the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. Welcome to the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. I am so excited to talk to today, Ryan Hampton. Welcome to the Recovery Hour. Oh my gosh, Lori, this is so long overdue. I am so excited to be here. I'm so glad you're here. And I have all the things. I was talking to Ryan before we got on air and I am in typical Lori fashion, super nervous. I'm closed in my office with the door closed and so no one else can hear me and I'm sweating and I'm dying and I love it. And I can't wait to get all of the details. But for those who are not watching, because we just had a conversation about that, but listening, Lori looks fantastic fab. Oh, you're so sweet. You know what it is? I washed my hair. Okay. I've been on three meetings today and everybody's like, oh my God, it's, I washed my fucking hair. Like I literally live in a mom bun. I've been sleeping in it. And then I just pin it in a different direction most days. So when I let this shit down, people are like, whoa, look at her. So it's my MO. I just keep that shit up in a bun for like ever. And then I, I drop it down on important days like this. When we have Ryan Hampton on the, the podcast, <laughs> I have 8,000 things to get into. Um, so I want to, for the listeners that may not be familiar with Ryan Hampton, which is crazy town, but it's a possibility. Give us a little spiel on who Ryan is. You're in recovery. Let's talk about that real quick and uh, what you're up to. Wow. Um, I know that's a lot. How many do we have? Um, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, first and foremost, like who Ryan is, I ask myself that question, even you know, on the, on the tip of, of heading into eight years, you know, in a couple of months, every single morning, but I think at the heart of it, you know, I'm a, I'm a brother, I'm a son, my fiance, I'm getting married to the love of my life in oh, March. I can't wait to talk about that, that is, you know, one of the just beautiful things that's happened in my recovery. I'm a dog lover. Uh, I'm a voter, a taxpayer, which is crazy author, you know, advocate, but one of the most important identities that I carry is a person in long-term recovery, you know, meaning I haven't felt it necessary to have a drink or a drug or any other mind altering substance since February 2nd, 2015. And, you know, the journey into advocacy and into writing and into, you know, founding, you know, two nonprofits and, you know, all of that is not necessarily because of my story, you know, um, my story's you know, to me, I mean, it's quite boring. Um, it was a, a result of, you know, what I saw happening to to others, people that I really loved and and cared about when I when I was in early recovery. I I didn't, you know, I tell people, I, you know, my my recovery date, February second, two thousand fifteen. I didn't wake up on February third, twenty fifteen, and say, hey, I want to write a book. I want to come out, you know, as, as a gay man. I want to you know, um, get my life back together. I mean, that, that, that wasn't my intention whatsoever. I mean, those were all small things that happened along the way that were very circumstantial. Mm -hmm. What I have heard in previous interviews, cause I did a little research, you know, I'm prepared for today's interview. You had a few friends, uh, two in particular that you mention often that, that really made you move forward with, with advocacy and wanting to, for their names, not to be in vain. I think what's commendable about that and to know as someone in recovery, that happens to a lot of us, 
yet you go on with the next day when you wake up and say, gosh, that really sucked that so-and-so passed and you just move on with your life. The fact that you stood up and said, we're going to do something about this and make the change is commendable and and why so many people respect you. And I appreciate you for doing that. So so thank you for all that you do. And, and yeah, for that being part of your story. Now, when you say your story is boring, I have to disagree because I've heard bits and pieces of it. And we're definitely going to hear about the one-legged drug dealer named Horse. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 <laughs> your excitement for Disneyland, your love for Sean and, and definitely want to talk about the piece that they just put out on today's show. Okay. You mentioned two to 15, you haven't decided to drug or uh, drink. What was your drug of choice when you were in your addiction? I mean, what wasn't right. Okay. I mean, it was, I mean, primarily it was IV heroin um, which had been going on for some time, but I mean, it was really, you know, the IV heroin was kind of like a last stop for me and it continued for over a decade. But I mean, I used, you know, co- I, 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 everything, I mean, yeah. cocaine, alcohol, you know, was a huge driver for me. Prescription pills is really where it started, you know, in the early days, I will tell you this though, and I don't get to talk about this much. There is one drug. There's probably no, there is one substance on this planet that I've only done once and I tried it and I hated it and I never did it again. I feel like this is an exclusive for the recovery hour. It is. What is it? What is it? Meth. Really? Yep. I, I, it was awful for me and I, and I, and it was the one thing I actually, and I was in the throes of my you know, full, full blown chaotic addiction, substance use, whatever you want to call it when mm-hmm. I tried it. And, um, I put it down and I hated it and I, and I never touched it again. That comment is probably so foreign to anyone that doesn't experience addiction because they're like, well, if you are addicted, wouldn't you just pick it up and do it all the time? Like, isn't that what you guys are about? So it's interesting to hear that. I, on the other hand, am a drinker and never did any of the other things. And then I will tell you, some people say you're not an addict because you haven't used those hard drugs. So it's interesting how you go back and forth, crazy town on the meth, like, wow. Okay. But you were a heroin user. And I heard, again, I I was doing some research and I was listening to Dopey, your interview recently. Mm -hmm. Love that guy, by the way. He's great. I I love that show. I mean, I, I was listening to that show in early recovery and, um, you know, I was in New York city for actually I was giving the victim statement to Richard Sackler. And when I was there, he reached out to me on text. He's like, you're in New York, come over and like, you know, come over to the apartment, let's do a pod. And I'm like, Oh my God, a pod. Like, I mean, like to do a pod on dopey was like a dream come true. It was incredible. Oh my gosh. It was amazing too. I loved it. I have said this often and my listeners know this. I don't listen to podcasts. It's the most hysterical. Like I don't read, I don't listen. I have ADD. I'm all over the places, like impossible for me to finish anything. I actually listened to the entire interview and I was intrigued and I was then so excited, of course, to have you on. And then of course, now I'm a dopey nation person. Like I'm in, I'm in. But when I was listening to that and I one of the things that you have experienced, which which you are known for in the recovery world is your advocacy work. And the book that you just finished is Unsettled. We're going to get into this in a different podcast because we just don't have time. I have a highlighter all over this freaking book because I have so many questions. So that makes me nervous. I always get nervous and tell people this whenever I show up to an interview and they have like a tattered copy of American Fix or Unsettled with notes and highlights. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. No, it's... <laughs> I would 
would just like to say, I if if I were you, <laughs> I would be so impressed with yourself. <laughs> because the fact that I had any interest past page three to keep going and then actually to ask questions, I mean, it's intriguing because you find yourself, as you've said in the past, and here we are today, you were eight, coming on eight years yep. Yep. sober. You know, yep. your addiction to... Um, Opioids. What was the actual, I can't think of it, the name of the drug, Oxy. Oxycontin. Yeah. You went after the freaking people that created the pharmaceutical company that put the shit out there and marketed it to people like us. Well, I mean, because they're just a bunch of motherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, that was really my theory of change early on. And it it came as a result of after, and you talked about my two friends, you know, when I lost bear and when I lost Nick and, you know, it wasn't just me, it was our community. And, you know, the circumstances of their deaths were so maddening to me. And I started to kind of dive in, you know, what, what's wrong here? Because, you know, particularly when Nick died, you know, was turned away from hospital rooms when he was asking for help and, you know, overdosing and dying and, and, and learning why he died, you know, yes, did, did, you know, people could go through the accountability argument all day, but your friend was using heroin. Of course, he's going to overdose and die, or there's a chance of that. And I'm like, yeah, that's beside the point. Like he was using heroin, but he showed up on your doorstep to your emergency room and was begging for help. And you told him there was nothing there for him, that you couldn't help him. And he died that night. So were you complicit in that? Yes. I make that argument. And, you know, it was, it was that experience, you know, when people then in our small community of Pasadena, California, were like, yeah, but this is just what happens. People die. And I'm like, no, I understand people are going to die, but do they need to, especially when they're asking for help? And it led me to this journey of just really questioning. I mean, I had always been questioning authority, but really questioning authority and questioning kind of like the experts and, and challenging them and in different ways. And those challenges, you know, led to me writing and it led to me exposing in my own way. And, you know, through some, you know, mediums like the Huffington post, you know, I wrote this big thing on Richard Sackler's father, Raymond Sackler, when he had passed away. Um, and, and, and through that exploring what the Sackler's role was, And the louder I got about it, and the more people that I met who felt the same way that I did, the more that I realized that, hey, just because these, this family are billionaires doesn't mean that my voice is any less valid, that my feelings are any less valid, that our, yes, maybe our power is way off balance and they've got more power, but there's some tools here that can really allow me to like nip at them, you know, and that's how I thought about it in the beginning. It was like, I'm just going to nip at them every way I could. And I didn't have any money and I didn't really have any resources other than my voice, activism, other people's voices. And so the writing turned into protests, right? And it turned into organizing family members and people whose lives had been destructed by, by the Sacklers. I, you know, we have constitutional rights and freedom of speech you know, we're just going to show up at the Purdue headquarters and we're going to make some noise and get people to pay attention to it. And then that nipping turned into like, you know, a, a little bit more painful nipping and biting, which then led to like real bites, you know, and real seats 
at the at settlement negotiations and within the bankruptcy and you know I, I would say more substantial power and that's where I think we caught them off guard. You know, mm-hmm. I yeah, don't yeah. think that the Sacklers or their lawyers or Purdue's lawyers ever really envisioned a world where a quote unquote addict or group of addicts could do anything other than tie tie their shoes or velcro their <laughs> shoes because we, you know their opinions of us are are very well documented of what they think of us um and i think they were quite surprised and we catch them by surprise but i think that it is a cautionary tale for any pharmaceutical company or for any company or individual for that matter who thinks that they can take advantage of us that we will bite back if anyone ever questioned your passion <laughs> I'm all riled up. Like I'm ready to go stand outside with a sign right now for something. With well, my- we, well, we are going to be doing that in a couple of weeks. So, you know. <laughs> Interesting segue to yeah. uh, mobilize recovery. We are going to get to that for sure. Um, I just, I just love it. The passion that you have. And yeah, that's the thing. Like, so for you, you feel powerless, but I have a voice and I'm going to use that a little bit. And what that turned into was this amazing book, which I, I, everybody, if you haven't done it now, run and get it. It's unsettled by Ryan Hampton. And we will 100% uh, do another one of these podcasts and talk about the book specifically because there's so many pieces of it. And you wrote this real time while you were going through this biting of uh, the Sackler family, which they were just taken by like they were blindsided by you. And yep. your and your peeps. Yep. yep. So yep. super excited about doing that. We're going to save that for another time. But I do have to ask you a question about some stuff in the period of time during your use, and then we'll get to mobilize. Yeah, that'd be great. The story of the drug dealer with the one leg named Horse. Yep. What I got from your interview with the Dopey podcast, and that's where I'm, I'm bringing this from. That's where I heard this information. And what I got from that is that you were emotionally attached to this person who was your dealer. It was like the it, it almost felt like to me the love story of someone who was actually showing and 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 caring for you. Yeah, you know, so this was chronicled in my first book, American Fix, and I mean it, it's a big part of kind of the tail end of my use. Horse and his girlfriend, who was a, a sex worker at the time, Star, you know, kind of took me in. You know, I I was essentially not essentially, I was homeless. And this is before I, I kind of migrated out to sunny California. I was in sunny South Florida at the time in Hollywood, Florida. And I had met them, you know, like I had met many of the people that were really my only family um, when I was out there, you know, on the streets. And that was through the pill clinics and they were uh, users. um, But horse was, you know, because of his decapitated leg and his physical condition was able to get more pills than most and was able had an easier time seeing more doctors, right? You know, he wasn't this, you know, when you say dealer, you know, he wasn't like this kingpin dealer, like, like he literally had many prescriptions that he was able to jack the price up for and resell out to a small network of people, of which I happen to be one, which supported his livelihood, which consisted of a very small studio apartment that had basically no furniture in it, a dog, 
you know, their dog's name was squid and, and, um, you know, it was to, to, to keep them alive and housed and, and, you know, food and clothes and all those things. I had met them at a, at a pill clinic. We became using buddies for some time and I had gone homeless, um, you know, for reasons that you can imagine. It was just, you know, life was completely unmanageable for me and, and thank God I didn't die out there, but they offered me some shelter, um, and said, Hey, why don't you, you know, you can, you can come stay with us. You know, it's no, it's no grand place to stay, but you know, we have a couch. Um, the only thing is I had to, you know, I, I basically slept with the dog and I love dogs. <laughs> I had no problem. So the dog squid and I slept on the couch and they had a small bed, uh, that was, uh, you know, five feet away from, from me. And, um, it was a, a tiny family for a while, you know, and I think, you know, the, the purpose of telling that story though, too, an American fix was, you know, I don't think that experience is that unique to many drug users. You know, my quote unquote dealer, you know, was also my friend. Hmm. Um, and he was also someone who, you know, didn't want to see harm done to me, you know, and we were, we were, we were using the same amounts. Um, we were caught in the throes of just chaotic substance use and addiction. And, um, you know, I can remember many times um, them encouraging me not to use certain things or to practice some sort of, you know, self-harm reduction to reduce, you know, the likelihood of an overdose or, you know, there was, um, you know, we were, we were, there, there was, you know, heroin that was on the streets at the time that was cut, you know, we hadn't hit like the fentanyl surge yet, but there was other stuff in it. I can remember, you know, him encouraging me, Hey, you know, use the pharmaceutical don't use the IV version of, you know, this type of heroin that you see on the street. And that went on for some time. I mean, I lived with them for quite a while. It felt, I think, you know, it was, it was a little bit under a year. I was with them for some time. And um, when I went back, when I wrote American Fix, I wrote it throughout most of 2017 and it published in 2018. And part of the exercise was really to try to track people down. And, and have some conversations with them. And, and, you know, the story with horse and star was one that I, you know, was dead set on documenting because it was a big part of my story. And, uh, I did some research to try and track them down. And, and in that research, you know, I was heartbroken. I mean, um, horse ended up, uh, getting killed and I, I didn't find out about it. You know, he had died uh, about a year, uh, prior to me starting the book. Uh, we had lost touch for a couple of years, uh, by that point, but he had gone into a, a Bank of America uh, in Broward County, Florida, you know, to, to rob it, you know, but he was unarmed, um, you know, and it was kind of a hoax. And he went in there to, to try and hustle money. And when he came out, there were Broward County sheriffs and uh, one thought he was armed and shot him and killed him. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But Star, I believe, actually did did enter recovery and star had a child and, and she is doing from, from last, I was able to, to check, um, healthy and well, and, and has started a family. That's amazing. I can't help but think how vanilla you might've felt in that home by having a name like Ryan when squid and star and doors, you know, it, it's so weird when I think back though, to then, um, and it's hard, it, it's, it's almost impossible sometimes to like put myself back in those shoes, but I do it as a, as a form, honestly, of gratitude. Yes. Um, and, and, and I do that and I don't do it in a big way. I don't, you know, not, not much self-talk or in meetings and whatnot, but I mean, I very, very oftentimes will recount those days just to myself mm. and, um, 
tried to put myself back in the headspace because I was in my, I was in my, my late twenties and early thirties, you know, in those days I was, I was in my, my, like right around 30, you know, 31 when I was living with them. And, um, I thought I was convinced that that was the best it was ever going to get. And I was okay with that. You know, I can remember, you know, kind of negotiating with myself that, Hey, as long as I've got this couch to live on and, you know, I'm able to see these doctors and like, you know, I'm not getting arrested. And, you know, every other day there might be a little Caesar's pizza that shows up, you know, and I can have a couple slices and, um, you know, I'm fine. And, and like, my big thing too, was like, if I'm, if I'm like my biggest thing in the world that I love doing was going to the movies, you know, I was like, and if I can like scrap together 12 bucks at the end of the week to go see a movie, like my life is incredible. Like, I mean, absolutely incredible. I mean, it's just bizarre now for me to like, think back that like, and, and, you know, I wasn't young. I mean, I was young, but I mean, 31 years old. I mean, like I was, I, I, I was, you know, watching friends of mine that I had gone to high school, go, you know, join major law firms and start companies and start families and things like that. And I, and I was like, yeah, this, you know, it's just not for me, you know? So it, it's, it's hard sometimes to think, to think that that's where my head was, but I am also profoundly grateful that I had that experience. And, you know, when I got into early recovery, I can remember thinking these were things I wanted to shove away. And I wanted to like rush and like become this like successful, successful business owner. Like I, like, I remember like when I was in treatment, I was like, I'm going to go start this company and that company. And like, nobody's going to remember that I had this addiction problem and I don't ever want to talk about this again. And like, I'm just going to restart my life. And like all these crazy, I mean, just, I, I still have my um, journals from when I was in treatment and like <laughs> they're sitting and I'm, and I'm never going to get rid of them because from time to time I read them, I'm like, holy shit, you were nuts when you were in treatment, you know? <laughs> and, and I, and I read them, but like today I can look back and be like every single moment like that with star and with horse and every argument and every time that I walked four miles with bloody arms and in the rain to go see a, a doctor or, or, you know, the overdoses or every time I went to treatment or was denied treatment, like every moment has led up to this life that I get to leave to lead today and, and live today. And if one of those things may not have happened or may have been like the smallest degree different than how it ended up or one of those people that I came in touch with, you know, or, or had built some relationship with, if it had been one, you know, the, like a speck different than it was, I would not be who I am today. Well, and, and you possibly so, wouldn't be here today. And I possibly wouldn't be here today. So I'm grateful for every single piece of it. I don't look back on that with any regret did I do things that I regret? Sure. And, and, you know, did it, did it cause a lot of heartbreak to me and the people around me? Absolutely. Did I live through it? Yes. Did a lot of people I care and love about not live through it? No, but today I'm here and I'm alive and I want to do the best with the story that was created for me, yeah. you know? Well, you are, you are doing the best and it. it's great it's great to have you on the show and to hear this coming from you because it is, it's a big deal. And a lot of people are affected. Like, you know, I'm not great with stats and I know you could probably roll them off, but what are we? One in three people in the U S are affected by 
Yeah, one in three right. American households, and it may even be more than that, um, given last year's stats. It, I mean, it, yeah. it might even be one in two at this point, only because you know we went from about twenty to twenty-four million Americans in twenty nineteen who qualified with a substance use disorder or addiction, that number during the pandemic skyrocketed to over 40 million, according to SAMHSA. Um, and, and I think continues to climb, you know, I, I, and I also am a big believer to someone who's become like a total data nerd and geek in this space that a lot of these numbers are vastly underreported. Oh yeah. For sure. You know, yeah. Like who's going to tell you that one, you know, household is like, oh, no, we don't have any problems. Meanwhile, they're sucking right. down the whiskey in the laundry room. Right. It's underreported for sure. For sure. I agree with that 100 percent. The the thing with that also, too, and I know this is one of one of the big pieces that you advocate for is the care. And then what is happening in the U.S. and the fact that we don't have the right care for things that have been going on forever. I mean, addiction isn't brand new. And if addiction is a brain disease, which we've talked about and which has been proven, why isn't there a cure? Why isn't there, you know, particular places where we can go and seek help that is easy to access? Like what you're out there, you're doing the work, like what the F, what is happening? I can't believe I just said what the F, by the way, when have I ever censored myself? So I'm saying, fuck, what the fuck? (laughs) I mean, this is one of the biggest questions of our time. That's, that's mind boggling. So like insanity, I I'm stop. I'm cutting you off because I, this is where I'm going with my head and help me with this Yeah. here in Reno. So I'm based in Reno. There's like seven different resources. They provide the same things. They don't connect. They do that. One does their thing over here. One does their thing. One of them gets insurance. The other one is private practice. Like what, why? So it's an infrastructure problem. Right. And, you know, addiction, I believe even more so than mental health, you know, has long been seen for decades as kind of the redheaded stepchild of the healthcare system. And you would actually be lucky if you live in a state where it's even included in the healthcare system up until just the last, you know, several years. It is a cottage industry. You think about where we're at today in terms of people like to use the word stigma you know, and I put air quotes around that because I, I believe like the more appropriate term for it is discrimination. It's Mm. prejudice, it's bias. Think about where we were, you know, with these public attitudes towards addiction, alcoholism, mental health 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Right. I mean, it was way worse than it is today. Like compounded times a million. Well, an entire system was built, you know, several decades ago, uh, using those old attitudes that this is a moral choice, that this is something that can be, you know, essentially, you know, dealt with outside of the primary healthcare system. And nobody did their homework in trying to clean that system up. We only over several decades just kept building on to this really old kind of outdated system. And state regulations, you know, you, you go to a state like California, you know, our sister state right next door to us, and it's, you know, it's easier to, to open up uh, an addiction treatment facility than it is a barbershop. Like you need more licensure, you need more accreditation to cut hair than you do to provide outpatient treatment services. Like these are outdated, antiquated laws and regulations. And, you know, you look at really the emergence of the overdose crisis, which started, you know, uh, I think, you know, in the, in the, the late nineties and, and continues to blossom today, 
you know, that's the modern day overdose crisis. We've had several waves of an overdose crisis. Mm-hmm. We had it in the seventies with heroin, you know, uh, predominantly affected black communities. We had it with, uh, uh, cocaine and crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. We, we, we never really built a good system. So we kind of just like threaded this thing together for the last couple of decades. We end up in 2016 where heroin and the overdose crisis is just ballooning into the public you know, media as a result of the 2016 campaign and the deaths that were happening in New Hampshire, early primary states for the presidential election. And what were, what were the results? Well, I mean, everybody said, well, we need to fund treatment more. We need to fund, you know, ending these overdoses more. And they're just throwing money at a broken system, you know, and, and we still see that today. What we really need is a bottom to top, top to bottom, complete restructuring, infrastructure change of how we treat addiction, how we treat people who have addiction, how we engage people early on, you know, in the process, whether it's through harm reduction or motivational interviewing or or whatnot. We need a, a, you know, the addiction workforce in this country is nil. Like we need to be recruiting qualified addiction treatment providers and professionals and peer support specialists, you know, embedding peers into hospital rooms. We need market saturation of naloxone. You know, I mean, there's, there's all these things that we should be doing that we're not because the federal government, state governments, municipal governments, county governments are really afraid to just kind of like burn the house down, I guess Mm -hmm. is the best, the best thing I could say and build from the, from the bottom up. What we're doing isn't working. It hasn't been working for a long time. It works for few, right. That, that have, that are privileged and have those resources, right. But for the majority, it is a complete failure, complete failure. And then we get into these stories of your friends, bear and Nick, and, and we have a, a very close to home story here with my good friend, Pam and her son, Darren, who, I mean, quickly to go through his story is very similar to ours in that he sought help to, for his addiction. And he was clean and sober for 10 plus years, you know, fell into some issues based on his insurance, not paying for his, his, uh, his medication. He was off of that for a little bit, went right back to drugs, went right back to his dealer hospital here, push you out there, found dead shortly after. Yeah. I mean, and, and what's happening is these, like, when you hear that story, you're like, what the fuck? It's the same place that this person was like last year that had the same story. Like, why isn't that being like, how is that allowed? How is this okay? Why, why is this continually happening? And it's not okay. Like, this is one of the reasons, you know, that we, we, we were talking about mobilized recovery. I mean, this is one of the reasons we do mobilize recovery. This is one of the reasons that a lot of us have decided to make advocacy and activism really kind of our rallying call because there's nothing about these stories that's okay. You know, and 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 I think, you know, people like me and people like you, like we're sick and tired of policymakers and 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 decision makers passing the buck on this. You know, right. I mean, this is a public health crisis of extraordinary mag- magnitude, historic levels of deaths, you know, to 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 you know give you a comparison. 
you know, for every eight to nine COVID deaths, we have one overdose death, probably more. And that's just based on the data that's reported, right? Yet federal spending, federal infrastructure, you know, is, is about 1500 times less mm. than what the other declared public health emergency in this country gets. And that's not to take away from COVID. That's just to give you a comparison, right? Of what we could do if we put, you know, uh, our money where our mouth is. So, you know, movements, and I've spent a lot of time in kind of studying the history of movements, history of the civil rights movement, history of the healthcare movement, history of the disability movement, history of the LGBT plus movement, you know, where do they start and what do they evolve to? Well, they don't start with the government for anybody who, who is interested to know, right? They don't start with people who are elected to office. Um, usually the protagonists of these movements and stories starts with people who are impacted and the genesis of them getting involved is through storytelling, mm. right? It's through effective public narrative, which is something we are doing in it throughout mobilized recovery. It's learning that story of self, that story of us as a community, that story of now, what's our call to action. You know, uh, you look at the AIDS movement. I mean, I think there's some verticals in terms of the storytelling element of it that we see with, with our issue, right? Which is here's this highly stigmatized, highly, you know, uh, brushed aside issue that is tied to like morals and one particular group of people and, you know, quote unquote, bad choices and, and whatnot. And it wasn't until families and healthcare providers and employers and folks realize they know someone or it may be them and starting to tell those stories and the, 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 the catastrophe of what happens when we ignore these deaths. You know, we went from a place in 1993 where, you know, 27, 28% of the American population felt that uh, uh, LGBT plus individuals should have the right to marry or even have a civil union that's recognized to, you know, a place in 2022 where well over 80% of the American population believes that, you know, gay marriage is a constitutional right. And it is a protected form of marriage, right? How did that happen? More people identified, more people got involved. You saw advocacy groups get up. You saw, you know, legislation propped up. I mean, the, that that's what needs to happen with ending overdose crisis in this country. And with a, with a constituency, right? That's so large. We went through the numbers earlier, right? 40 million people impacted, you know, that, that, or, or who need help right now, 23, 24 million people who identify in recovery, one in two, maybe, maybe one in three households who are impacted. The math is clearly on our side, right? But what's it going to take? We don't need every single one of those individuals to stand up and say, Hey, I'm an addict or I, I had, problems with addiction or I, you know, I'm, I'm in recovery from X, Y, Z. No, we need like a sliver of one tenth of them to do things like you're doing, right? Podcasts, talking to the media, doing things like mobilize recovery, going out and telling their story, going out and talking about how they've been impacted and saying something's wrong. It needs to change. If we had a thousand, 2000 people doing that loudly across the country overnight, change the trajectory of this, right? Look at ACT UP, AIDS movement, gay mm -hmm. movement, LGBT movement. It wasn't every single gay person in America 
being like, hey, I'm gay, you know, it was like ACT UP started with like six or 700 people, you know, who got out and were loud about it. And that turned into a tidal wave, which is where we're at 30 some odd years later. So, you know, I think we're on that path, right? But it's taking time. And it's, it's a, and, and, and not everyone wants to be as disruptive as I am and some of my colleagues. And it's, it takes all of us, it takes the podcast, it takes the disruption, it takes the biting at the Sacklers, it takes people running for office, right? It takes people writing books and getting, getting on the air on, on NPR or in their local broadcast stations. Like every single one of us have a part to play. It's just what I hope Mobilize does and what I hope we can all do together is find what fuels your fire. What is it? Right. Right. So, right. And let's help you be the best at best version of that to be a part of this movement. That's amazing. That's amazing. So inspiring. And yes, we were talking about mobilized several times. Tell us what mobilized recovery is about and what's happening for national recovery month with mobilize. Yeah. Mobilized recovery was really, you know, an output. It, it started in, in 2018. Um, just a brief history of it. Mark Zuckerberg put out this all call saying, Hey, we're, we're going to, Facebook's going to choose 100 projects from around the world, the entire world <laughs> to fund. <laughs> Wait a minute. <clears throat> Did you hear that? Yeah. The entire world, world. To, to, to fund $50,000 each and give you a year of training and support to bring this project to life. And you have to be, you know, to impact a major societal issue. And I'm sitting just scrolling through Facebook one night and I see this and I'm like, what the hell, you know, like, what do I, <laughs> I feel like do? everything with you is you like, know? what the hell I'll just like, throw my hat in the ring and see what happens. Yeah, right? I was like, you know, and I sat up all night and I wrote this proposal of course called, you did. Called, called mobilize recovery. And the idea behind it was what if instead of like, you know, the doctors and the scientists and the academics and the policymakers sitting there telling us what to do. What if we had some money and some training capacity to actually go out into communities and ask people, what do they need? Mm. Right. And to provide resources to them. And instead of saying we're the leaders, what if we had some sort of apparatus that was building more leaders, right? And showing people what their agency was inside to be the change makers in their own communities. And I wrote this proposal and went through this long, you know, interview process. And sure enough, I ended up being like one of nine North American recipients of, of the award and the training. And it, and, and it was housed at, at Mobilize was housed at Facebook and incubated at Facebook in its early days. And it was only supposed to be one year mm-hmm. and um, the funding ended. And I said that we've got to find a way to, to keep this going. And that's how the Voices Project and Recovery Advocacy Project were born. And this will now be going into our fourth year. We have traditionally done it. It, it is a, a Nevada original, you know, Nevada is the OG of Mobilize. It is home base. It started here. You know, this is where we had the first one, but for 2022, you know, we decided we really wanted to to get out into communities. Like we didn't yeah. want everybody to have to come to Las Vegas. And so it's a 27 stop bus tour throughout the country. It's one of the most ambitious things we've ever taken <laughs> on. Um, we're doing kind of these mini mobilized moments across the country to bring it out to people because we don't want, you know, we, we want to do what recovery says, which is meet people where they're at, yes. you know, and, and, and that's what we're doing. You know, of, of note though, is that I never expected that mobilize would have grown into what it is today. Um, that was not the intention, you know, in the last four years, it's now it's gone from this like rinky ding thing that we pulled, we pulled together on a shoestring to something that, 
you know, has a, a lot of support um, and a lot of momentum behind it. You know, we've seen brands and have brands mm-hmm. and backing from, you know, uh, not just Facebook, now Google and Twitter and uh, YouTube, um, a, a significant media partnership with iHeartRadio. Um, we've had individuals, you know, like Vegas's own um, Darren Waller uh, is a big part of it. You know, President yeah. Clinton uh, is on board with it. We've had participation from the White House. You know, Elton John is a huge supporter of it. Macklemore, Melissa Etheridge. I mean, we've, you know, really built out you know, something that couples advocacy and learning and change makers with big brands and larger known names, because we know it takes all of those elements. Like we need bold awareness, we need bold media, and then we need boots on the ground who are really going to take this on. And that's really kind of, I think in a, in a nutshell, what it is, but in Reno, I'm so excited because it's, you know, it, 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 we're bringing mobilized to Reno and we want everyone to, to, to get involved and to see what it's about. And, and we don't ask for any money from folks. You know, I go out and raise the dollars and we raise them as a community to make this happen. It doesn't cost people anything, but we also understand that people show up sometimes and they're like, Hey, this isn't for me. Like I'm right. just fine where I'm at in my recovery. And that's great. Like we don't, we're not forcing you to do anything. We're just asking people to take a peek and see if this is for them. Um, for, sure. for those that it is, like we welcome you. We want to help you. We want to support you and, 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 and we need you. Yeah. And what's so beautiful about that you have on your website. I know that you're a stats guy, 2019 plus mm-hmm. 4,300 plus people. Uh, and that's, that's us. That's us in recovery on the ground going, oh my gosh, what can we do to help? What can we do yeah. to advocate? What can we do to move forward in our area and our grassroots? And so I love that you brought up Reno because yes, we are going to have the bus stop in Reno, which is so freaking exciting. I can't wait. That's going to be on September 6th. And Hillary, our mayor, dear mayor, Madam Mayor, she'll be there giving us the proclamation of National Recovery Month. City of Reno will be recognizing that. Ryan himself will be there. So exciting. So if if you do have a copy of the unsettled or the American fix, feel free to bring it because he'll sign it. Yep. Thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. It was great to have you. I am so glad we did this and I'll see you soon. Okay. Excellent. That was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovery Hour podcast. Successful podcasts equal subscribers and good ratings. Please take a few minutes to rate, review, and subscribe. To learn more about me, your host, Lori Windfeld, jump on over to the recoveryhour.com. Here you'll find information on my coaching and speaking practices, as well as information on guests of the show. If you're still listening to this and you haven't subscribed to my mom yet, what are you doing? You're lame. So go do it right now. All right, all right, calm down. Sorry about that. He's just really excited for this to be successful since I been spending all of my free time on this project and not with him. While you aren't lame, as my son suggests, I would really appreciate a few minutes of your time to subscribe. While it doesn't seem like much, it really does help my goal in spreading the word of recovery. Until next time, let's continue to inspire, live, and give.